the first letter of Paul, or Peter rather, we turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, where we read the verse, verses 1 through 13. One Peter one verses one through thirteen, and in response to the reading of God's word, we'll sing together Psalm thirty-three, stanzas four, five, and six. <clears throat> Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The text for the sermon of this morning is taken from the passage we read together in 1 Peter chapter 1, the verses 3 through 5 of that chapter. We'll read those verses together once more. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. After the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing together hymn 52, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you might be familiar with the saying, while there is life, there's hope. To reverse this, however, is to speak even more truthfully, yes, biblically, while there is hope, there's life. Peter has often been characterized as the apostle of hope. Beside him, John is often called the apostle of love, and Paul the apostle of faith. Of course, that's not to say that Paul never spoke about love. John never dealt with hope, and Peter never wrote a thing about faith. Still, Peter is the one who majors in teaching the church about hope. His whole letter bears witness to this. Indeed, it makes its first appearance at the very beginning. His letter leaves us with a very distinct impression that to be a Christian is to be filled with hope. And that's intentional. Peter knew his readers. He calls them elect exiles of the dispersion. They were scattered throughout what is today known as Turkey. They were mostly Gentiles. They lived in territories completely under Roman control. And yet they themselves, of course, no longer lived like Romans. They now lived in many ways as followers of Jesus Christ. And that brought them problems. <clears throat> Peter knew that his readers had been beset by various trials. And though they were not yet under intense persecution, for at this time Christianity was a fledgling religion in many ways, it wasn't considered a real threat to Caesar. There was no official policy against Christians, just a few incidental outbursts here and there. And so Peter says nothing about Christian Christians suffering physically for their faith. Instead, he knows that they were facing discrimination because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. They were being ridiculed and ostracized by former friends. They were struggling to hope. And we can appreciate that. It's one thing to have hope when you're well-fed, financially stable, in peaceful relationships with family and friends, and admired and appreciated by many. But it's quite another to have hope when comfort and convenience are gone and replaced by affliction 
and abandonment. Beloved, first Peter proclaims the character of Christian hope to Christians who were sorely afflicted, and it proclaims it in such a way as to offer a challenge to us who live as Christians with all sorts of comforts and conveniences. So as it was for Peter's first readers, so also it is for us to reflect upon that truth that while there is hope, there is life. So I preach to you God's word in this way. Through Christ's resurrection, God has given us a living hope for our inheritance. We consider three things. First, the author of our hope. Secondly, the aim of our hope. And thirdly, the assurance as we hope. So first, we consider the aim of our hope. But we need to first reflect on the idea of hope. Sometimes the word is used to convey wishful thinking. I hope the Blue Jays win the World Series this year. More commonly, the word is used to convey uncertainty. Are you planning to come to Bible study this week, we might ask? And the answer sometimes is, I hope so. Well, there's uncertainty there, there's doubt. One of the kids might get sick, I might have to work late, the car might not start. You're not absolutely sure. Well, whether it's wishful thinking or uncertainty, these uses of the word hope come nowhere close to the biblical meaning. In the Bible, hope is rock-solid certainty. Its foundation is not guesswork, speculation, but fact, knowledge. It's a confident assurance that what God promises, God will perform. Hope rests in the trustworthiness of God. And that already gives us the hint we need to determine how we can have this hope. What's its source? What is its, who is its author? If hope rests in God, then there's a very good chance hope comes from God. And so Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is how you and I get hope. By being born again, which is the sovereign work of God. God saw us leading a life very much without hope. That's the sad story you read about in Ephesians 2, verse 11 and 12. Remember, Paul says, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the pit in which we lived. And so in order to uproot us from our hopeless world, God caused us to be born again. It really is a marvelous way of speaking. 
Peter could have written, God gave us a new hope, or God brought us into a new hope. But instead he says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Because the hope which you and I have obtained is so full and profound that Peter has to use nothing less than the idea of rebirth to describe it. For there is no other way for us to have this hope than by being born again. That's how drastic a change was needed. We all, I suspect, know what it means simply to be born. It means big change. From the seclusion of its mother's womb, an infant is set free and is brought into a far bigger realm with all sorts of opportunities. Birth brings about big change in location, in opportunity. The moment of our birth, we understand, was groundbreaking. Life changes profoundly. Well, so it goes for rebirth. There had to be a transformation of our lives at every single point. And so God caused a massive change in our lives through rebirth, regeneration. That's groundbreaking, life-altering work. Your first birth allows you to allows the hopes of this world to fill your vision. Your second birth allows the hope of the gospel to fill up your vision. And that change, to be clear, is the work of God. Just as birth itself is very much a miracle of God, so rebirth is also a miracle of that same God. It involves nothing less than the mighty word of God who at the beginning said, let there be light. Paul makes that connection between God's word of creation and rebirth. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. The Lord God brings us into a new world of hope. And how he makes that happen, Peter goes on, is according to his great mercy. Notice, Peter doesn't just speak of God's mercy, but of his great mercy. God's mercy is great in comparison to man's mercy. For what does ours often look like? Mercy is often dependent upon the fickleness of the one in a position to extend it or to withhold it. Our mercy typically depends upon our circumstances, our mood, as well as other external factors and features we might be facing. But God's mercy is far greater. His mercy doesn't depend upon his mood or upon external pressures. God's mercy has everything to do with his faithful, constant, covenant kindness. To speak of God's mercy is to speak of his covenant. God committed himself to us. He made promises. And he's trustworthy. You see, God's mercy ultimately then hangs upon his great love. 
We were dead in our transgressions and sins, Paul writes earlier in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, great mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, born again, together with Christ. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And what is the means by which God brings this all about? Well, that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This goes right to the very heart of God's work in Jesus Christ. In keeping with his great mercy, God has raised Christ from the dead and so created not only the possibility for you and me to be reborn, but its very reality. By his death, Christ paid for our sin. Therefore, God raised him up from the dead. But as the new and exalted and indestructible life of Christ came into the world at his resurrection... So a new and better life came to birth within us. That's what you and I get to see and hear at every baptism. That's where the benefits of Christ's resurrection are declared to the child. Benefits like forgiveness of sins, righteousness before God, and rebirth. You see... Christ's resurrection and our baptism are so closely tied to one another that Paul says in Romans 6 verse 3 and 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, too, might walk in newness of life, rebirth. <clears throat> and so by responding then in faith to our baptism, we are made to share in Christ's resurrection power because we are united to him. We stand in a renewed relationship to the Lord God through our union our bond with the crucified and risen Savior. This is rebirth, according to God's great mercy, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that brings us hope. Living hope, Peter says, because Christ is alive, and so our hope is alive. Though you live in a world that seeks to stifle your hope, it cannot be shaken because it's rooted in the raised Christ. And under his blessing, it also then grows and flourishes. The world that surrounds us lives under the judgment of God for sin, and so they live without hope. But we, united with Christ, have a hope for the future that is alive and is unshakable. It's a hope that is patient, trusting, longing, 
God will deliver in his time. Yes, while there is hope, there is life. Brothers and sisters, think for a moment of how meaningful Peter's words are for himself. You see that Peter includes himself with his readers. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Everything Peter says here was especially true of himself. At a certain point, Peter had been filled with hopelessness, for his Savior had been crucified. Peter had put his faith in this man who healed the sick, raised the dead, preached salvation. But Jesus had been crucified, cursed by God. Peter's hopes for a new life had been blown to bits. His life was in turmoil, and his last act toward his master, outright, deliberate denial. And now his master was dead. The world would remain hopeless after all. But God's great mercy burst forth on Easter Sunday morning. And the risen Christ makes a special point of appearing to Peter. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 5 that the Lord appeared to Peter then to the eleven. So shortly after leaving the tomb, Jesus seeks out his despairing disciple. That Easter Sunday was then one of the best Sundays best days, in fact, of Peter's life. He was confronted with the fact that Jesus Christ had risen and so had come to bring Peter into a new world. All that Peter had done wrong, Christ took with him to the cross. And by Christ's resurrection, Peter was given new birth and with that, new hope. And that hope, you see, was no longer subject to fluctuation. Peter was always up and down. He was either hot or cold. But through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter's inconsistent, wavering hope could now be permanent, living hope. Peter looked upon the risen Christ as the transformed, glorified one whose heavenly life gave hope to Peter that all is good and will one day be very good because my Messiah has arisen and I with him. So is it any wonder that Peter begins his letter by belting out, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter cannot contain himself. It's a song of praise to the author of our living hope. Peter wants his discouraged readers, and that includes us today as well, to know while there is hope in Christ, there is life. So do you struggle at times with despair, even hopelessness? Pilgrims 
in a foreign land sometimes do. This is a world full of restrictions like despair, diseases, sicknesses, breakdowns of the body. This is a world of groaning. This is a world full of the frustrations of being slandered, rejected, ostracized. But with Peter's audience, let us today be reminded of our second birth into a living hope. We now have a superior vision. By the Spirit, we've been brought into a high definition, 3D view of life. So let the word of God this day penetrate. You are alive, alive in Christ. You have a living hope because of God's great mercy. Bless then the name of the Lord. We need not wonder whether God's mercy and grace extend to us. They do. And therefore we for our part focus upon the promise of God that we have received forgiveness of sins and new life. And we embrace those promises. Make them our own in living hope. Which is our second point then, the aim of our hope. In verse 4 of our text, Peter fleshes out in some detail what this living hope really looks like. He writes that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, that is, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and fading, kept in heaven for you. The hope to which Peter refers is the hope of the future kingdom of God. That means it's a hope that gives color to our life today. Or to say it differently, our hope is actually our better future intruding upon our present and giving shape to it. Our future hope, hope for the future, animates our present life of faith because we know that we will receive all the treasures of our inheritance. We then live in hope today. It's an inheritance of which the Old Testament inheritance was but a shadow. You remember that God had promised Abraham that he and his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. Abraham had something to look forward to. And when Joshua and his army finally conquered much of the land, Israel received it as inheritance. But as time wore on, this Old Testament inheritance, luscious and beautiful though it was, was continually ravaged by Israel's enemies or natural disasters and soiled by Israel's own perversion. Against that background, Peter then speaks of a different inheritance, one that can never perish, spoil, or be defiled, or fade. It's kept safe in heaven, safe from the destructive powers of death, of sin, and of time. Really, 
Peter cannot even fully describe this inheritance. He doesn't really have the words for it. He can only speak of this inheritance in terms of what it isn't. In the first place, it is imperishable. It can't be damaged or destroyed. War, invasion, not a chance. That simply cannot happen to our promised land. It's imperishable. It's also undefiled. It can't be polluted, blemished by idolatry or perversion. It has been obtained through the perfect purity and obedience of Christ. And so it is kept by God in heaven so that nothing or no one can defile it. For us who only know of a world stained with sin, this inheritance is going to be unlike anything we've ever known. Like the song says, you ain't seen nothing yet. And this inheritance will never fade away. Its beauty will always be pristine. Everything else fades away. Clothing A fresh cut of flowers fades and wilts. The human body fades over time. But the inheritance of the saints never fades. Its beauty, its luster will never grow dim. This is the inheritance that awaits those who share in the new life through Christ's resurrection. The church's heavenly inheritance is being kept safe and secure from the perverse, dirtying, and destroying powers of sin and death. Our inheritance is made up of nothing less than the treasures of God's eternal kingdom. Full redemption and perfect joy await the church. This is in the aim of our hope. Does this excite you, brothers and sisters? Does the prospect of inheriting something that no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, does that excite you? Does it motivate you to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? You know... One of the most, if not the most obvious attitude of an heir is anticipation. He knows what's waiting for him. Anticipation, however, is something that you and I have and are being trained to do away with. In our age of instant gratification, we have our remote controls, our electronic appliances, our plastic cards to get immediate results. We don't get our eternal inheritance right away. So do you live in eager anticipation of the rich treasure that awaits us? Perhaps a better question is, do you live with your eyes on eternity? Do you hold on to the promises God has given you Or have your eyes become distracted by the struggles of your earthly sojourn? 
Are you living for the treasures and the trinkets of this world? Well, that can happen when the cares of this world close in on us. We can lose ourselves in this world, what it offers to us. We can chase after an earthly inheritance that comes from storing treasures on earth. We can find our treasure in our job, and that becomes all we ever talk about. We can find our treasure in our children, and they become all we ever think about. We can find our treasure in our possessions, and they become all we ever fixate upon. We can find our treasure in our own little kingdom and lose sight of the everlasting kingdom. Then we do well to remember the warning from the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, inheritance on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There is an eternal inheritance promised for us. But we need to understand that if we become so attached to this world and all its treasures and cares, we will lose out on that promised inheritance. In other words, hope cannot blossom when your heart is in this world. Through the resurrection of Christ, we have a living hope, an inheritance stored up for us, one that is not going to disappoint us. We are so privileged. Our hope extends beyond the needs of this life into eternity. The one who then hopes in this way is going to show it in every way. It's going to impact your life. You have received God's promise of a royal inheritance. Is that your aim today? And remember that hoping for your inheritance does not weaken you in your tasks here on earth. It's just the opposite. It gives you the strength and the dedication to work for God. This present life is meaningless unless what lies behind it and shapes it is eternal life. So we work and wait. That's living hope at the inheritance kept in heaven for you. Of this you can be certain. So we come to our final point. Receive the assurance as we hope. The Christian's life is never in vain, brothers and sisters. You and I can hope perfectly. For we can know with absolute certainty that not merely will our inheritance be kept for us, but also that we ourselves will be kept for our inheritance. In verse 5 of our text, we encounter one of the main points of Calvinism, summarized in the Canons of Dort, chapter 5, and that is the preservation or the perseverance of the saints. 
Peter says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. By God's power, we are being guarded through faith. Point being, from God's side, he preserves us by his power. And from our side, we persevere through faith, which is a gift of God so that no one can boast. Peter outlines for us the way to coming to the coming salvation for all those born again into a living hope. He says we are guarded by God's power. He uses a military concept here. He points us to a God who is our refuge among our enemies. He protects us in the midst of our spiritual warfare. The devil, the world, and our own flesh are busy lobbing grenades at us to wreck us. They would see to it that the daily grind, daily challenges would destroy us. Instead, what's the case? We are guarded, shielded by God's power. We are placed in his fortress and he keeps us safe. Now that's not to say that he completely removes us from any attacks. Of course not. But whatever he allows in our lives, he's pleased to use for the purification of our hope. He will use his power to preserve us for himself. Well, at the same time, Peter reminds his readers that God doesn't shield us without any involvement on our part. He doesn't turn us into robots who are programmed to do certain things at certain times. Instead, he's given us a gift, the gift of faith, so that we would persevere. It's by faith that we are sure of God's preserving care. And by faith, we cling to that work. We are guarded by God's power. Yes, but also through faith. Even though we may not always be able to make sense of all that happens to us, we believe, we have faith that God is in control. So do you believe? That God can and he will preserve you until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. If you believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and that there God gave new life to his church, then you may and you must also believe that he will preserve you till the end. And you live and you work with that assurance Our new birth is based on Christ's work in the past. And it gives an assurance of glory for the future. For our salvation, Peter says, is ready. It's prepared in principle. The Lord Jesus, we know, has gone ahead of us to prepare for us our inheritance. The new Jerusalem. And one day... At the final day, it's going to be revealed by Christ 
by God. He's going to bring it down from heaven to earth. Christ will reveal our full salvation. Can you just imagine, brothers and sisters, what these words of our text would have been and would have meant for these pilgrims among pagans? Their initial joy at their new birth had somewhat dissipated. They were spread out. They were finding life a real grind. And they wondered, is this really what Christianity is all supposed to be about? But Peter's words, overflowing with praise, would have set them again on their course. So also we live with hope as new people with new hearts waiting for a new world. We bless God by trusting him, believing his promise, longing for our inheritance and finding refuge in his preserving work. While there is hope, let there also then be life for you. Do not live like a hopeless case, but as a hope-filled Christian. Amen.